0: I am grateful to be back with you all. It's been a it's been a while. I've taken the opportunity over the last year and a half, almost two years, to be an interim pastor in Joplin, Missouri, uh, traveling back and forth from Kansas City. It's been a good discipline for me to figure out how to come up with a sermon every Sunday morning. Uh, I like teaching. <laughs> it's a little easier than coming up with those sermons every Sunday morning. But I had a great experience down there, but I'm glad to I finished that and to be back in Kansas City and to be able to do some teaching in the churches that I have connections with and I have always enjoyed coming here because one, I really feel like you all are working at what the early church tried to do in the sense of gathering around tables, eating together, hearing conversations among each other, uh, and then singing together and then just having a conversation about some of the thoughts, some of the reflections that you all have picked out. Uh, that's, that's a lot like the early church. In fact, as I gather here with the, the dim lights and the, the kind of the darkness here, I, I certainly feel like I'm in one of those caves or one of those uh, places those early Christians gathered, the tombs where they would gather. So uh, uh, gracious. Gracious. Thank you for the, the wonderful invitation to come here and to be a part of your, of your worship this evening. You have a very provocative title. <laughs> Did God Kill Jesus? Wow. Uh, sounds kind of like some kind of murder mystery or something. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's very interesting. Very provocative. I, I think that probably we could change that title... In fact, I I would change it a bit. (laughs) God did not kill Jesus. (laughs) But it does raise the question of why people even have that thought. Why do people think that God was responsible for the death of Jesus? And if not God, who and why? And I often think that sometimes... Uh, We jump to the theological answers before we get to the historical questions first. If you ask an average person, if you were going up and down the street and you said, uh, why did Jesus die? Uh, And they might look at you and say, to save us from our sins. Well, immediately you jump to the theological answer. But before you jump there, you really have to ask the question, why did Jesus die and who was responsible for it? from a historical perspective. So I'm gonna take you to two verses, and I I think they are very um, insightful verses for giving us a handle on why Jesus came to a violent end and who who were the ones that were responsible for this. This comes from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23, uh, verses one and two. these words then the assembly arose as a body and brought jesus before pilate they began to accuse him saying and listen to some of the accusations that were brought about jesus we found this man perverting our nation one two forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor and three saying that he himself was the, the messiah if you really want to know who's responsible It's that second charge that's leveled against Jesus. That's the big charge. And that is he was prohibiting us or he was encouraging us, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor. That in the first century gets you killed. That is the Roman background to this story Whenever we begin to read the Gospel of Luke especially, you want to read it through the eyes of taxes. We sometimes don't think about taxes as being one of the main impulses here that runs throughout the Gospel of Luke. But whenever you start the story of Luke in chapter 2 with Jesus' birth, if we go back to the Advent, we can read this story of his birth in this way, in chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, that doesn't capture it. Sometimes our English, English translations don't capture it. It should say, and all the world should be registered, and in fact, take your Bibles and mark in them, or your tablets and mark in them, uh, and put registered, for taxes. This was the first registration for taxes that were taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Jesus's life begins around the issue of taxes. Chapter 23, Jesus is being accused of of prohibiting folks from paying taxes. So if you want to know why Jesus got killed, why violence was put against him, it was because he was a tax evader he was prohibiting or trying to encourage people not to pay taxes to the Romans. Now there's lots of things the Romans would let you get away with. But the one thing they would not let you get away with was pay, not paying taxes. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Think for example how Jesus did this in several places in Luke. Do you remember the story where people came up to Jesus and they brought a coin to him and they, in Actually, they raised this question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, give me a coin. And so he gives them, they hand a coin over to Jesus, and he says, whose image is on it and whose inscription? And they said, well, the emperor, Caesar's. And Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God's. So it sounds like Jesus is saying, no, no, pay your taxes. But you have to understand that whenever Jesus was asked questions like this, he always attempted to give a tongue-in-cheek answer. When people are trying to trick you, when people are trying to get, to get you in a bad place, what you do is you tell a little story with a twist. And that's why Jesus to- told these parables. He told parables because it left a lot of people scratching their heads, but a lot of people going, oh yeah, I got it. The little people, the people who are on the margins, would go, oh, we understand what you're saying. When Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God the things that are God, basically he is saying, what isn't God's? Give everything to God. And they were nodding their heads like this, and they knew, Rome is not getting a penny. And then Jesus found other ways to try and subvert the tax system. Jesus was always trying to find ways to subvert it. Why did he go home and eat with Zacchaeus? That great story about where he's walking by, he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree, and he tells Zacchaeus, come down, because I'm going to go to your house today. And he goes to Zacchaeus' house. And in that process, what happens? Zacchaeus has a transformational experience, and he no longer will start charging the taxes the way he had been in the past. If you want to make, and this is not a bad, this is not a bad principle for all of us. If you want to make a big difference in the world, find the middle person. Find the person that is creating the injustice between the little people and the big people. And if you can find transformational experiences for that person, it will change the whole system. And that's what he did with Zacchaeus. So, uh, really, when you look at the biblical text, who killed Jesus? Why did the violence happen to him? It was the Roman imperial system. That is the answer. But the theological answer, why was Jesus killed? That's where the theologians come in. And one of the theories that is out there, and this is a theory whether you've ever heard of it or not, you're familiar with it because it's probably the number one theory about Jesus's death. And it's called a penal substitution atonement. All right, now that's 50 cent theological words and I will sign you up for seminary right after this event (laughs) so that I can take you and and give you some detail. But basically, this, this theory of why Jesus was executed, comes from the year about 1095, so it's over 1,000 years old. I often tell people, we are heirs of the dead. We are dictated our lives by those that did things 300, 400, 500, 1,000 years ago. Also, whenever you sing a lot of songs like I did growing up, I grew up in the church and so I sang lots of hymns, this idea of this substitutional atonement, was in lots and lots of hymns. And so you learn your theology, I think, so, not so much from seminary as, or the church, but maybe from some of the songs that we sing. That's where we often get our, our theology, but this is it. The theory is this, that humans sinned, and they are so sinful, they are so bad, they are so evil that no punishment is actually adequate. The only punishment that is adequate would be Jesus who is divine and human the only one that could take away sin so sinless Jesus is placed at the sinful humanity and that's the reason God took Jesus or killed Jesus Um, now the problem with that is that a person like who came up with this theory who is a man by the name of Anselm in 1095 he was influenced by his culture and his day. He's influenced by the Normans, the invaders who came over to England. And he thought about feudal lords. And feudal lords, their word was law. They had strict judgment. And that's the kind of judgment he visualized God having. And if God has that kind of judgment, you can expect that God is the one that. As much as we would try to keep God away from this violence toward Jesus, God is the one who is ultimately responsible. So, Jesus' death has a a sense of coming from God. That's this old, substitutional uh, atonement theory. Jesus was substituted for us and had to be offered to God. God wanted His death. I think that misunderstands the biblical text. And I think it does in a couple of ways. I want to introduce you to a little theory that is out there by a man by the name of Rene Girard. Rene Girard said that all of humanity, wherever you are, whatever culture you experience, wherever you live, there is something within all of us that has desire. For example, look at the candle that we have here in the very center of this table. I look at it, I think it's pretty, I'm impressed with it. I desire it. Now if I desire it, there's another component of this object. Somebody else out there also wants it. So you have a desire for it. I have a desire for it. Now if it's just one-on-one, maybe we could work it out, but it's never that. It gets bigger and bigger. You desire this house. You desire this land. violence just keeps going and growing because you desire that particular object. It gets so bad, there's only one way to overcome it. Rene Girard said, and that is the scapegoat. You have to find a scapegoat. Even though this person is not responsible, the group will turn on someone who they think has some kind of responsibility for this, even if they have none, because they want to bring peace back into the group. Jesus becomes the scapegoat to try and bring peace back together. He is being scapegoated. This happens in all kinds of situations. But here's the difference. Jesus was resurrected, which says scapegoating doesn't Work. It says that it is a false way to bring about nonviolence. It's a false way to try and reconcile people together. You can't find scapegoats, don't work. And we know that because Jesus' resurrection. It says he is vindicated, vindicated as being honest and, and uh, innocent of all these charges. It does one other thing, and I think this is perhaps the most important thing. As we begin to think about what Jesus did, Jesus breaks the powers and principalities. Whenever people would look and they would see the power in the first century, they would see Rome and say, "Ah, oh, yeah, it's very, very powerful. Jesus, the biblical writers and others said, there's a greater power behind that, the powers and the principalities. This is what enslaves us. This is what holds us back. Jesus' resurrection, this breaking of the spiral of violence breaks enslavement. You are freed from whatever binds you and holds you back. And so the enslavement that a person has to the powers and principalities, we might call them different things today. You might call them death. You might call them uh, Satan. You might, you might have different terms for them but they're the big concepts that whatever holds us and binds us together, they are false powers that Jesus has broken. So Jesus is not a substitution for us. Jesus is, in a sense, a liberator for us, and that's the number one theme of the Hebrew Bible, I think, and also the New Testament, this idea of liberation. And what we do is we are participating in that liberation. Not substituting Jesus to get our sins covered, but participating with Jesus. Have you ever thought about these phrases that come from the Bible? Jesus said to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. That does not sound like substitution. That sounds like I want you to participate in this liberation. Or whenever Paul says, we have been crucified with Christ. Or as he says in Romans 6, we have been buried with Christ. That sounds like partic- participation, and that's the image that Paul, that Paul, the Gospel writers, are trying to get across. We participate, and in that participation with Christ, we are liberated from the things that bind us and hold us. Now. I wanna give us plenty of time because I know we have some questions and answers and I kind of, I wanted to do about 15 minutes just to kinda of get you thinking about some of these big categories. But let me open it up just for some questions here over the next 10, 15 minutes that you might have about these kinds of statements. Did God kill Jesus? Or this kind of uh, substitution of what Jesus substituted himself for us and therefore had to please God by being this sacrifice for us, but questions—questions that you might have, something I maybe uh, stimulated in your thinking, or a question you might have. Yes. So,
1: if Presbyterians, I've been told, believe that in pre-destination, so if the whole thing was supposed to play out the way it played out, then it was
0: God's plan. Can you speak to that? Sure. Uh, Well, no, I'm not a Presbyterian. (laughs) How's that? I I don't want to step on uh, Presbyterian thought, but I would would say this when it comes to this. Um, Jesus is never an afterthought in the mind of God. It's not like something that, oh, here, oh, we've got a problem. Here, let's bring Jesus onto the scene. There is a sense in which from the foundations of the world, there is a sense that liberation is what we're seeking, freedom from enslavement, and that God had this in in God's mind from the very beginning. So there's not just a throne-ness that this is kind of happening. Uh, some people might call that predestination. Uh, some people uh, can call that sometimes by looking from the past and look, uh, looking looking here in the future, and looking to the past, and say, "Oh, we'll see how it all it all worked out." But I would simply say that Jesus has always been, uh, as Paul puts it, the great yes of God. The great yes, and it's not something that was just um, his his role in liberating us from the powers and principalities is not something that was not uh, not uh, un- unthought of or un- unanticipated. Jesus is as he is characterized in Matthew and many other writers, he's the new Moses in a sense. He's like Moses who frees people and takes them into a new place. Matthew really makes this point by having him give the Sermon on the Mount and having him uh, born uh, and run into Egypt like Moses. So this is not, um, not something that's just foreign. There is a plan to this liberation that humanity has become captive to. Yeah, question.
1: I, I really like where you're going with this and, and but it, it sort of in my mind it, it brings up a lot of conflict between the gospels and all the stuff that Paul wrote. Mm-hmm. What, what what how does the you know the atoning sacrifice for sin and all that other stuff gel with with this idea? Mm-hmm. And and I guess the larger question is what does one do with a lot of the things that Paul wrote that we might just want to not look at?
0: all right that's one option all right got an option um i paul is a he's a deep thinker i mean he's thinking about these issues of jesus in relationship to his jewish tradition in relationship to the greco-roman world he's trying to put it all together and to make sense of it that's why i think when we go to paul i like to find those passages and highlight them that emphasize participation with Christ. That we are with Christ in living and we're in Christ, we're with Christ in dying. So that, are you okay? Yeah, you're all right, you're fine because you are what? You are in Christ and you're okay because of the faithfulness of Christ. Christ's faithfulness to the cross, his faithfulness to going to the very end um, and anticipating and hoping and resurrection puts one in Christ. Uh, someone mentioned uh, predestination. And if the early, one thing that Paul does, he likes to use that phrase in Christ. It's the most popular phrase he uses. We live in Christ, we die in Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? What he is saying is, if we participate in Christ, we, are, we have this assurance of, yes, liberation, yes, of ethical living, when we're in this sphere of Christ. It's kind of like when you go to the airport. When you go to the airport, KCI, you get in a plane. You're in the plane, and it has a destination for you. You're going to a place, but you're only going to get there if you are in the plane. This is Christ. When you're in Christ, here is this destination that you are going to. Now, does Paul use some of the sacrificial language? Yes, absolutely. But I think we need to think about sacrifice, perhaps, um, in the sense of gift. It is something that is given. It's not something that is required. It is something that is given. And in the giving, it becomes sacred. And that's what happens with Christ in his going to the cross. Uh, It is a giving of himself, uh, a martyrdom. But in the process, it becomes holy. It becomes sanctified in that process. Not that it had to be required. Not that God needed this. God doesn't need to perpetuate violence upon us for God's own needs. That uh, uh, we're not... Uh, a violent God is not something that we, that we worship. Now, having said that, I understand there are some images, especially in the Hebrew Bible and other places in the New Testament, that have some kind of violent images. Um, but I think that might be more related to the writer of that day and age who is living in the context of a tribal warrior image and it gets projected onto a God. When you see the real image of God, you pick up the image like like in Judges where Gideon creates an altar for God and says this altar is Yahweh is peace yeah that's it you've got it there are places where you can see that coming out and of course paul loves to use the word the god of peace that's one of his favorite phrases yeah question
2: i think on the same point but like a lot of us here have listened to a lot of richard Rohr. and mm-hmm. he'll unwind it with maybe less worship me more follow me but um like many of us have grown up in a roman catholic tradition it, it, i just why has it taken us so long to get this better Theology, because it seemed like we're 2000, whatever. I mean, what I, I grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition, mm-hmm. it was still whiteness and atonement and atonement. Atom- yep. and it, it, can you speak at yeah. all to just kind of the evolution well, I, of what yeah. seems to be more progressive, better theology? Um, but it doesn't seem like it's really been in the consciousness of
0: uh, yeah, nonviolent atonement. Yeah. I. I, I uh, yeah, I don't think it's been in the consciousness because a couple of reasons. One, it's kind of always easier to fall back to a default. Yeah. Something that you feel comfortable with, something that you've heard. And like I mentioned, the songs that we grow up with, mm-hmm. they influence us. Um, for example, this is one of the songs that I grew up singing. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. I will sing of my Redeemer, sing, will sing of my Redeemer, with His blood He purchased me. On the cross, he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. I mean, those are the kinds of things that you sing week after week, year after year. They kind of get ingrained, and you push, you push kind of the, the the tape. Also, I think there are some major things that have happened over the 20th century that are causing us to reevaluate violence. Uh, World War I, World War II, the development of the uh, dropping of the atom bomb and certainly the Holocaust. These are the kinds of things that are challenging traditional theology and that's why in the 1900s up to the 20th century you had I think a movement may not be real big and wide but people wanting to find a healthier view of God, of their own salvation, of the relationship with Jesus and breaking us this spiral of violence. And that's the one thing Jesus does over and over again in the biblical text. He tries to break the spiral of violence. When you go to the Sermon on the Mount um, and he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Well, if you know anything about first century culture, if somebody pushes you, you need to push back. Someone throws a rock at you, you throw a rock at them. Somebody sticks you with, pokes you with a stick, you poke them with a stick. It's kind of a a tit for tat there in the ancient world. Uh, Because if you don't respond, I'm shamed, uh, I have no machismo, I am weak. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God, what typically people would have said, blessed are the warriors for they shall be the mighty ones of God. He just flips it upside down. So I, I think there's this message in Jesus, but we have been slow to pick up on. And here's, uh, I was with, uh, I was with uh, St. Andrew Christian Church this morning, and we were talking about the love commandment in the Gospel of Matthew. In the love commandment in the, the Gospel of Matthew, there are three commands. Uh, love God with all your heart, mind, soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. But there's one command that we hardly ever talk about. In chapter 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We drop that one out. And we drop that one out even though it's a command because we got enemies. And so what do we do? But I think all the way Jesus is prodding us, prodding us to move toward liberation from these things that bind us to war and violence, breaking the spiral of violence. This is what Jesus is attempting to get us to do. Other, yeah, questions. I have a question about um, maybe you could clarify a little bit about the idea that uh, that you brought up, up uh, that is was uh, uh, purported by uh, Rene Girard. Okay, Girard. Yeah, about the, the uh, scapegoating and uh, how does that dynamic develop from you know this competition over over an object into how does that transform into, into how does that solution work? For scapegoating. And uh, I guess the follow-up is that, would Mm. that be, how that becomes an effective and nonviolent solution is that it's a voluntary, like in in the Christian, uh, you know, Christ steps into the scapegoat rather than a scapegoat. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah, it's really interesting with René Girard, and he's a little bit complicated to read, but he is a person I think is a tremendous writer. Uh, He was a philosopher, sociologist, a deep thinker, and he came up with this theory of this uh, desire scapegoating. But as he began to read the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible, he found it didn't work. It didn't work. You're right. These are people who would willingly go, take up your cross. And they would take up the cross because they realized, one, scapegoating, that that's not the way to solve the problem. That's not the way that we bring resolution and conflict uh, settlement. And so um, when I think about what scapegoating does, that resurrection experience just blows it all the pieces and says, if you want to try and resolve the tension around here and what do we have to do? Well, we're going to need to bomb this particular group over here because if we do that, that will solve the issue. This, this, this group over here, whether it is in Yemen or Syria or wherever, they had nothing to do with this conflict over here. But we have projected on them and say, ah, if we do this, it's going to solve the situation. Scapegoating is the way that we operate to try and find this pseudo peace in the world. Um, The New Testament, the Hebrew Bible says, no, there's a different way to be able to find to find this peace and reconciliation um, versus trying to scapegoat someone. Yeah, yes.
2: Um, So I actually grew up Muslim. I have extensive training in Sharia law, five chapters of the Quran in Christ. Um, and large part of the Muslim belief is that Jesus was not crucified. In fact, Jesus was risen up to the uh, seventh heaven mm-hmm. and will be brought back to be our savior. Uh, at, you know, it, by the end of the world. Um, so I grew up not seeing a crucifixion. Yeah,
0: the crucifixion. Yeah, I I, I understand that. That's interesting. I
2: have a lot of struggle with uh, seeing how uh, you know you have to sacrifice your your own son because even one of the prophets, when it came down to it, and God has asked um, the prophet to sacrifice his son, the knife wouldn't work and end up giving a gift right. as a sheep to sacrifice right. the sheep exactly. to the son. Exactly. So why wasn't that the case in terms of uh, why didn't we see a sheep or why didn't yeah. we see um, an animal? Because we can have had even more knowledge if Jesus mm-hmm. was still alive and continued to be with us.
0: I, I, think, I think perhaps the reason is because Jesus uh, confronted The powers that of that particular day and age, and they were not going to let him live. Didn't have to do anything with with God at that point. It had to do with the Romans. They were going to execute him. Uh, No one gets executed for saying, Love God, love your neighbor, be kind to one another. You get executed for saying, Don't pay your taxes. That's where you get in trouble. And so Jesus' experience of confronting powers and principalities of saying these things are binding us that's what got him executed at that point now if he had stayed dead he would simply have been one in a long line of martyrs i can i can give you a list of folks and we know their names from the first century that did the same thing jesus did Um, got uh, groups up and tried to overcome rome all kinds of groups that attempted that but what made the difference is, is resurrection. And I, I know that's kind of one of those big differences. It's not so much ascension as it is resurrection. But that was a great belief in the uh, Jewish world at this time among a particular group of Judeans. Not everyone believed in resurrection, but there was a big group that did believe in resurrection. And Jesus, the empty tomb, undergirds that and says, yeah, that's right. If it happens, it means death as a power is broken. And Paul affirms that. No more death. If the tomb is empty, it means Rome has no more power over you. You can confront Rome and say, tell you what, I'm going to love you as an enemy. You're going to kill me. I'm going to live like there is no death. Because that's the way I believe with resurrection. So that resurrection becomes the real heart and difference for those early for those early Christians. But but I appreciate what you're saying because it, it, it is a bit different than the ascension. And uh, there is a, you know, the early Christians did have that aspect in there, but Jesus becomes resurrected and then there's a sense of being uh, ascending in the Gospel of, of Luke. Yeah, good question. Over
1: here
0: too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Nick, he's been waiting.
1: Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so I just want to ask you to, to um, engaging people who hold so tightly to the formula of scapegoating. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up Southern Baptist, and I'm like really afraid of talking to my family about my opinions because like I'm so worried about this like tension of argument and like really like disappointing my parents for being some type of progressive. My parents think I'm like turning into this liberal progressive who's like watering down the gospel. Right. Right.
0: Um, so it's refreshing to listen to somebody. Right, sixties, probably like talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> who, who Who could that be? <laughs> hey, I've just had a hard life. <laughs> well, I grew up Southern Baptist, all right, so I understand exactly where you're, where you're coming from in that context, and uh, the hymns you would sing that kind of reinforce that. You know, at that point. I sometimes think it's not as helpful in trying to lay out the theological ramifications for my parents or for others as to try and demonstrate what are some of the techniques of peacemaking and reconciliation. What are those things that break the that break enslavement? Um, now, and and I will use. I will use scripture, I'll go to scripture. That, that's one thing that always uh, bothers, uh, if you're growing up in the Baptist tradition, it will always bother them if you keep throwing scripture out at them because they don't know what to do with that. You go, well, you know, Paul said this, uh, well, yeah, but, and Paul said this. But I try to find uh, ways to model the liberation that takes place. Uh, and then when the questions arise, say, well, here's why I have this perspective. This is the reason I do this. But it's, uh, it's difficult because people, the system that Anselm came up with is a very point one, point two, point three, point four. it's easy, it's simple. People want easy and simple answers. They want that with Revelation. Uh, when I teach Revelation, I never teach it as A happens, B happens, C, D. It's cycles. It's cycles, cycles within cycles within cycles. You have to think in different ways. We think in linear ways. They didn't think in linear ways. So uh, you, you have to find kind of those ways to kind of find those ways to get into the conversation so that they can hear you. But I always find that sometimes if I love people enough and I stick with them enough, they're willing to hear me. They're willing to hear me at that point. Yeah,
1: um, so I was, I, I love the fact that you were talking about how essentially, um, you know, you have Jesus who had his moment in Gethsemane that was just like, okay, take this cup for right, me. This right. is too much to bear. Right. And you have modern day prophets. I'm going to be referencing crossing the lynching tree, where you've got, you know, Martin Luther King right. had his moment in the kitchen. Malcolm X had had his moment. So we we've got these moments where folks have like a conversion kind of thing, and they're able to face death. Uh, And they're like, okay, I'm no longer going to, there's no in the world I'm gonna live an oppressed life again. I've experienced liberation now, even though uh, systemic oppression still exists, uh, but I am liberated. And so I'm gonna go and continue to to speak truth to power, uh, no matter the cost. Um, And I recognize that this comes from a lot of folks who are experiencing oppression. And uh, a lot of folks in, like, you know, there are various forms of oppression. But I recognize that in this, in this space, uh, a lot of folks in here are white. Uh, and th- we recognize it in our own modern day system. Um, some folks experience a lot less oppression than others. Mm-hmm. And so ha- what, is, what is our responsibility uh, to be co-liberators understanding that we ourselves may, may actually be the beneficiaries of a system that is designed to work for us and not against us?
0: Oh yeah, and that's, uh, we have these discussions around seminary tables all the time when we have this privilege. I have a privilege to talk about this around seminary tables. So what is my responsibility? What is my uh, sense of, of obligation? And I think this is the point at which there's not one answer fits all. It's discerning that particular moment and what is the most liberating thing that I can do. Maybe to step back and let others lead. Maybe to co and help. It's a real art to that. And it's a real balance of trying to find that. Because I know for myself, I like to fix things. You know, if you've got a problem here, okay, here we go. We're gonna fix this, we're gonna take. You have to be very um, sensitive to your own kind of motivations to discern whether it's appropriate to step forward, to step back for moments like that, uh, especially for those who have privilege. Uh, that's, that's stepping back and saying, you know, I'm not going to impose my perspective, my, my what I think is right on folks, when it may not be at all, just because of my perspective, yeah. Well, thank you also very much for allowing me to be a part Uh, Wendy, were you going to say a little closing words? All right, great, thanks. You join me in thanking Dr. May.